We've been talking about why are we here? Why is this church here? Why am I on the earth? Why are you on the earth? So we're really looking at to find our purpose. And to do that, we've got to go to the Word of God. Because only God knows what our purpose is because He's the one that created us. He's the one that called this church, established this church, sustains this church, provides for this church. He's the one that brought you to this church. He brought us together. Why? For a reason. And to do that, we went and looked at what Jesus told His disciples just before He was ascended into heaven. And the only one we looked at so far is in Mark chapter 16 where Jesus told his disciples that they were here now to go into all the world and to preach the gospel into every nation. And so, uh, so that's what, why we're here to do. And, and we looked at several things about that. First of all, we're to go. That means we come to church to learn and to mature, but our purpose isn't to go to church. Our purpose is to go. And the next word was into, which means out among, not to sit on some monastery, but to be involved in the world. And it's very tempting in this day and age when, when the world seems to be getting darker and darker and the, the, the systems of the Antichrist seem to be getting stronger and stronger to just want to hide from them and not be involved in it. But our calling, our commission, is to go in among the lost, to go in among the world systems. And the, all the world means not just the geographic world, but it means the systems, the ways of the world the commerce of the world and, and all, the, all the things that are involved in the place wherever you happen to work. And we're to preach. The word preach just means to declare. And it's not just by standing behind a pulpit or with a bullhorn on the street corner, but it's the way you live your life. It's to be available in opportunities to talk about what it is that God's done in your life. To every creature, God's not leaving anybody out. And I believe Jesus will not come back, and I believe the Bible teaches Jesus will not come back until this gospel has been preached into every nation, every ethnos, every, every nationality. And that's what we're learning about. But in order to do that, we've got to understand what the gospel is. What, it is. what is it we're supposed to preach? What about God? The gospel is not a theology. It's not a doctrine. Theology is good. Doctrines are very important to keep us straight and, and have us going along the right lines. But the gospel is more than that. The word actually means good news. And the question we've been asking ourselves is, is it really good news to us? Because if it's really good news to us, not just information, not just something we like to hear about, if it's really, really good news to us and has impacted us as good news, we won't be able to be quiet about it. Because if you look at other things in your life, you find a good restaurant, you see a good movie, or, or you have some good experience. I'm getting that echo up here, so if you could please do whatever you do magically to take. Thank you. Um, so, uh, the, 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 we, we tell other people. In fact, we've looked at in the Gospels when Jesus did things for people. I was looking at some of them just yesterday. Uh, he, he, he said, don't go tell anybody, and they couldn't help it. They couldn't hold it back, even though he told them not to tell anybody. Why? Because something good had happened to them, something beyond their expectation, something that was good that changed their life and impacted them in a wonderful way so they couldn't be quiet about it. And so with all that, we went back and looked at, okay, why do we have to be told? Why do we have to have programs that kind of make us guilty and force us to go out into the world and hand out tracts and to tell other people what's happened to us? Maybe if we have to be forced to do it, maybe if it takes guilt to do it, maybe we haven't seen the really goodness of the good news. Or at some point we've seen it, but we've lost touch with it. And so the purpose of this series really is to go back or to look for the first time at the Word of God and to see what is it what is the good news of what God's done for us in Christ? And to make sure that that's had an impact on us just as much as if the Patriots won the Super Bowl again, or I won't mention the basketball baseball teams, but it's, something good happens in your life that you're excited about and care about that you want to go tell people about. 
And so this ought to be better than anything. We ought to be more willing and desirous and excited about talking. Get up every day excited about this. I heard a story, and I heard it told from the person that had this experience. Ray McCauley was a pastor of a wonderful church in South Africa. And, uh, I heard him in a message saying that he was in an airport somewhere in the, United States, in the world, and Reinhard Bonnke, who was a great evangelist, uh, happened to see him, and they knew each other, and he rushed over, instead of saying, instead of saying, uh, 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 good morning, how are you today, Ray, he just grabbed me and said, do you realize the opportunity we have today? There are thousands of people around us that haven't heard the gospel yet. That's all he could think about. He was consumed with that. Why? It had made such an impact on his life. And then we look at where we are, and we're able to come to church, and I'm talking to me, I'm talking to all of us. We're able to come to church Enjoy the beautiful church we have now, the air conditioning on a day like today and, and the heat in the wintertime and enjoy each other's fellowship and seeing our friends and all that and go back out into the world and drive home, go to restaurants and there are people around us that are going to go to hell and it doesn't touch us at all. Why? 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 Now, God doesn't ask us these questions to condemn us. He wants us to wake up to where we are because if we, don't wake, if we wake up to where we are, then we'll begin to open up so that God can begin to touch our hearts so that he can begin to change us. So this is not for any purpose of condemnation or guilt. If so, I'd be as guilty as any of the rest of you. But it's because God wants to open us up to see things about ourselves so that he can, we'll allow him to do the work in us because otherwise we just become content and self-satisfied and we become like the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, and we do not want to be lukewarm. Amen? So what we began to do is we go into Romans chapter 1. This is the verse we've been looking at. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And we've read this before. I'm just going to read down through it quickly and then touch on something because we're going to go to another level today. Paul writes this word. But the whole book of Romans is really uh, 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 walks you through this process that we're going through. And so we will touch on different parts of it. We're not going to take the time to go through the whole book of Romans. But the book of Romans is centered around the 8th chapter, which is really where the gospel is communicated to us. But notice Paul doesn't start with that. Paul starts with something else. And he starts with this, he gets, after his introduction, he gets down to this verse. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Let's stay on that verse for a minute. It's the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We talked about that. It's the power of God. The same power that created the universe. The word salvation means to be delivered from every kind of bondage. Not just sin, but all the consequences of sin. Sickness, disease, depression, all the stuff that, 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 that the, 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 the pharmaceutical world makes all its money off of. And all, but the gospel has the power to deliver us. It's God's power to deliver us. Not just his counsel, his power to deliver and to set free. And if you want to get a taste of what that power can do, just read what Jesus did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There wasn't a situation that was too difficult for him, including a man with a thousand demons in him that was so demon-possessed that they had to walk around the road where he lived. They were afraid. The devil had marked off territory through this man, and people could not walk down the road by the caves that he lived in. They were so afraid of what he could do. Didn't stop Jesus, did it? In fact, that's the only reason he went over to that town. 
And the demons were afraid of him. And they cried out and said, what do we have to do with you? Have you come to determine us before our time? Which means they know there's a time. And Jesus says, well, who are you? How many of them are you in there? He says, we're a legion, a thousand demons in this man, empowering him with satanic power to scare people and physical power, spiritual power. And Jesus didn't walk away. He wasn't afraid. And the demon said, if you're going to cast us out, please send us into something else. Why? Because they didn't want to go back into hell. Now that ought to be a clue when the demons don't want to go into hell. I sure don't want to. And so Jesus gave them permission to go into a herd of pigs. And then they drove them into the sea. Jesus set him free. And he sat there in a sound mind. So well, that was Jesus. I know stories of pastors that have done that. They've cast demons out of people. And suddenly they're in their right mind. Just like that. Delivered, set free. The power of God to salvation. Why are we ashamed of something that wants to deliver people and set people free? Why are we ashamed of something that has the power of God to set people free? Instead of being intimidated by the world, the devil is actually intimidated by the church. It's just we don't know what he knows. Verse 17. This is where the power is. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we've talked about the fact that the power of the gospel is that it reveals the righteousness of God. And we began to talk about there's two sides to the righteousness of God. We're so used to hear the side that talks about that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. All things have passed away, all things have become new. Verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteous, be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So the righteousness of Christ, the side we've heard about, the righteousness of God, is what Christ died to in order so that he could give it to us. That there's a great exchange that's taken place. We gave to him our sin, he gave to us his righteousness. And that is the gospel, but in order to value that, in order for that to mean something to us, we have to understand the other side of the righteousness of God. And that's what verse 18 talks about. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So I don't want to talk about the wrath of God, but that's what the righteousness of God on the other side involves, because the other side of the righteousness of God is talking about how righteous he is. God is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely just. And that means if he is just and he is righteous and holy, then he is going to give judgment out for unrighteousness. And because we live in an era of grace, which if you read the whole Bible is like a parenthesis. Before, the, before grace, there was judgment. After grace, there'll be judgment. You and I live in this period of time when the, the wrath of God for unrighteousness is being withheld. Because God wants to pour His grace out on everyone that will accept it because there's going to come a day when that opportunity closes and the grace of God will not be available any longer and now the judgment of God will come. Why? Because He's a righteous God. Because he's a righteous God, he has to exercise judgment on all unrighteousness. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, verse 19, what may be known of God was manifest in them, and God has shown it to them. We're going to simplify this here because we've already gone over this. What Paul's talking about here is that God is going to come at some point in time, which may be soon, and God is going to bring judgment against all unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What that's saying is man, we looked back in the garden and we saw that in the garden when God created this beautiful paradise, put his man and his woman in that paradise and said, enjoy it, have at it. The only thing you can't eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I didn't design you to handle the responsibility for discerning good and evil. You just need to do what I tell you to do and I'll handle that responsibility. Satan comes in and tempts them to do the very thing that he did in heaven, which got him kicked out of heaven, which is to rebel against God and to take their matter, their life into their own hands, to assume, to take something into their hands that God did not give them and to try to make themselves like God, even though he'd already made them his image. And what Satan was after, and this is the key thing to understand, Satan wanted them to take their life into their hands to become the God of their own life because that's what he attempted to do in heaven when he was Lucifer. And God had to kick him out, and the Bible calls that a rebellion. And so he comes to the earth to take God's crowning creation, man, and tempt him to commit the same sin that he attempted, to take life into his, own hand, his life into his own hands. It's important to understand that, because what we talked about is the root of sin is not lying, stealing, fornication. It's not, all, it's not those things. That's the fruit of sin. The root of sin is self, self-reliant, self-centered, self-willed, all those self things we talked about, is I'm going to do this myself. It's my life. I can have whatever I want. And if you read the decisions of the Supreme Court and you read the laws that are being passed, it's all rooted about my rights over my body, over my time, none of which you will find in the Constitution, by the way, but Congress and our court have have recognized this right of self. And we looked last week and saw in 1 Samuel when Saul decided to exercise that, that the prophet Samuel, speaking for God, called it rebellion. It's important to understand that. Because when I try to establish myself in any way independent from God, my rights, my judgment, my time, my anything then the Bible calls that rebellion. Why? Because I'm establishing myself as my own God with my own kingdom. And to, 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 re, to re reject the creator as my God. So I haven't rejected him as my God. I come to church. I pay my tithes. But what's the inner attitude of your heart about yourself? We're going to put you back together again, but we've got to look at this. We've got to look at the righteousness of God, what God requires, and without grace, what would have happened to us? Because otherwise, we don't appreciate the grace, the good news of what God's done for us, how far God's been willing to go. And we ended by looking at this principle that sin is lawlessness. It's doing what I want to do. It may be obeying God because I want to when I want to, how I want to, which is what King Saul did. 
He, wanted to, he was willing to obey God, but on his terms. And the Bible calls that rebellion. And it says the sin of witchcraft. So witchcraft doesn't have to be sitting around a cauldron reciting chants. It's just doing what I want to do and not being obedient to God. All right. Now let's go over to chapter, because what he, the last verse in here we looked at was down at verse, um, let's go to verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their body among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the cre- creature or creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's what our society is filled with. We're worshiping the creation. I'm the creation. Our, our, our natural resources are the creation. And yes, we should be good stewards over what God's entrusted to us, but not worship it above God. Not worship it above God. Now let's go over to, to Romans chapter 5. We have to skip some things in Romans in order to move on today. So we've talked about the fall, Romans 5. We've talked about the fall that, that, that the man rebelled against God by deciding he wanted to govern his own knowledge of good and evil instead of simply just obeying God. And we look at what happened here. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Keep in mind that death here does not mean closing your eyes and going to sleep and be putting in a casket. Death here means to be separated from God. Because in Genesis 2, when God says that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, literally in the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. Adam and Eve died spiritually immediately. They didn't die physically for about 900 years. It took that long for the sin to catch up with their body. It doesn't take that long now. Because sin's been in the world, and the world's saturated with it ever since. So the death he's talking about here is separation from God. And if you realize that God is life, he is source of life, he is absolute life, to be separated from life is death, just as to turn off the light is to be in darkness. Okay, let's go on. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or attributed to us when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who is to come. Let's read back over that again, verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Let me talk about the time periods he's talking about here. First of all, you have the time from the fall after Adam disobeyed God. And God, he, he, notice the first thing he did was he went and hid from the presence of God. And then he realized he was naked, so he sewed fig leaves or, or leaves together. He made his own covering of his shame and of his nakedness. And then when God appeared, God asked where he was, and he said, I'm hiding from you. And God says, because I'm naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? <clears throat> and, and, and then he, 
it says he was afraid, he was ashamed, and he hid from the presence of God. And that's what man's been doing ever since. Why? Because man is aware now of his nakedness, that there's shame, that there's sin. Somewhere in our side of us, we know we're not right. And so what we try to do is cover it up ourselves, not with fig leaves, but with good works, with our jobs, with whatever we decide to build into our lives that we're going to rely on to make us feel as if we're okay. Those are as if we sowed our own fig leaves. God comes, and what God does for them is he takes and sacrifices an animal which causes the shedding of blood, and he covers them with an animal skin. So God only covers their sin with the shedding of blood, which is the forerunner for God's ultimately washing away our sin with the shedding of the Lamb of God's blood. So we have, Mo, uh, uh, we have Adam's fall. And then if you go on and read in chapter 3, God has to, has to remove them from the garden. Why? Because if they eat of the, if they eat of the tree of eternal life, they're going to live forever knowing good and evil. And the problem is if they live forever knowing good and evil, then nobody can die in their place to pay for that sin. So as an act of grace, God evicted them from the garden in order to preserve the ability to redeem them back. And everything God does from chapter 3 of Genesis on through up until the Gospels are announced in in Matthew chapter 1 is God's effort to prepare man for the coming of his Redeemer. And if you look at all those books, that's in all that time, that's what it took to get man ready. And even when he did, most of them missed it. Because we're so caught up in self, we couldn't see God's effort to help us and to deliver us. So now you have Adam's sin. Adam's rejected from the garden. And between Adam and then Moses, on the other hand, you have this period of hundreds of years where literally, where literally sin is loose in the earth. And because sin is loose in the earth, men die. They're separated from God. They physically die. They spiritually are dead because it says they all sinned. It's not just that it was unfair, Adam sinned and everybody else got blamed for it. We all committed this sin of rebellion, doing what we wanted to do. And yet it says until the law came, that sin was not imputed to them. I've really gotten into that and tried to understand what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, I believe what God's saying here, because let me go on and and read it, because in order to understand it. Because then, once Moses comes, things change. So you have the wonderful garden where man is obedient, man is in the presence of God. Then you have the fall, where man takes his life into his own hands. And between that time and when Moses comes, sin is in the world, and because they're all sinning, and because they're all sinning, they die, spiritually and physically. But yet it says their sin was not imputed to them. We're going to look at what that means in a minute. Because now look at what verse, verse 14 says. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. What's that talking about? Before Moses came, before the law was given, man sinned, but he didn't understand what sin was. And just because he didn't understand what it was doesn't mean he didn't reap the consequences of it. It's like a child sticking his finger in the light socket, may not understand why he shouldn't have done that, but he's going to get the results by sticking his finger in the light, and I don't recommend that. This is, not, this, is for, for, this is for example purposes only. This is not to follow. Oh, never mind. Uh, so, 
if the child's not been told, don't stick your finger in the light socket, he may go ahead and do it. He doesn't know why he got shocked. But he reaped the results of it. He got his hair standing up straight, tingling all over his body. He got the shock of his life, even though he didn't understand why. Because verse 14 talks about, it talks about, for there did not sin according to the likeness of Adam's sin. What was Adam's sin? Adam intentionally violated a known command. God told Adam before Eve was on the scene, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, you will die. In other words, don't eat of that tree. And if you do, if you stick your finger in the light socket, you're going to die. Eve, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, was deceived. But when she gave the fruit to the man, he wasn't deceived at all. He knew what he was doing. He chose to disobey God's known commandment. And there's a greater accountability when you know what the law commandment is, when you know what God expects and you still violate it, that's an intentional violation. Now here's where that's important. If you don't know what God requires, you can never know what sin is. And if you don't know why, what, you don't know why you're dying, you don't know why people are dying, there's nothing you can do to change that. You don't know how to repent because you don't know what you did. And yet you're still sinning. And that's where most of us were bumping along until someone shared the gospel with us. And so from Adam to Moses, when the law is given, that's where man is. He's caught in this terrible situation where they're dying because they're committing sin, but they can never say, can get again. Slow down, John. They, don't, they can't get out of it because they don't know what it is, that the, what sin is. They don't know what they're doing that's causing this. You with me? Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. God is in the process of choosing to reveal his plan of redemption, decided to do it by forming a people for himself, the nation of Israel. And God didn't pick an existing nation. God started from scratch, and he picked a man named Abram, who was a moon worshiper. And he picked him because the Bible says that he knew that Abraham would would train his children up after the way he learned. So God reveals himself for a long story and says, through you, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then God's faithful to them. They multiply, and then there comes a time when there's a worldwide famine coming. God leads them into Egypt under under the direction of, of, of Joseph, Abraham's grandson. And then when the famine's over, they stay there instead of going back to where God had given them. And they become so powerful, so big, so populous that the Pharaoh is afraid of them and so he puts them into a bondage as slaves and they let him do it. And after about 400 years of being there, they finally cry out to God from the weight of this bondage of being slaves. And God has already prepared a man, Moses, 80 years into his training to be the one he's going to use to deliver them. 
God supernaturally brings them out, crosses the Red Sea, brings them out into the Sinai Peninsula, and after about three months, they get down into the southern part of it, which is where Mount Sinai exists. God's done this because he wants to bring them to a land he has promised to them. So what's this got to do with us? Because before God leads them there, he wants them to see something. So he calls Moses up on the mountain, and he tells them, this is what chapter 19 says, he tells them, I want you to come down off the mountain and tell the people of Israel that they are to come around the base of this mountain because I'm going to come down on the mountain and reveal myself to them in a limited form. But before they can do this, it's important to understand, they need to consecrate themselves for three days. They need, to, they need to get any uncleanness out of their life. They need to wash their clothes so that their clothes are clean before me. And a husband and wife need to stay away from each other physically. It's all by preparation to let them know that this God they're going to see is a holy God. And he said, and then you need to put boundaries around the foot of the mountain in case they get there and they want to rush up on the mountain and see me because if they do, they'll die. Why? Because God is absolutely holy. And for any unholiness to come into his presence, it has to die. Dies on the spot. Because righteousness and unrighteousness cannot dwell together, just like light and darkness cannot dwell together. And if light and darkness try to dwell together, the more powerful is going to win. And every time you turn on your light switch at night at home, you see a living example of that. Because in, in order to turn the light on in your, make the kitchen in your kitchen light, you don't have a dark switch you have to turn off and then a light switch you have to turn on. If you just turn on the light switch, it drives out the darkness. Why? Because the light is a more powerful force than the darkness. Holiness is an infinitely more powerful force than unrighteousness. They cannot dwell together. And so God says, you've got to keep them down at the foot of the mountain. So at the end of the three days, I love, I love the verse, we're not going to read it, but it says, and God brought them out, Moses brought them out to meet their God. They brought them out to meet their God. He has to warn them again, don't come up on the mountain. Well, it turns out that was not really a problem. God comes down on the mountain in fire and thunder and rumblings. The ground rumbles. God comes down in that side of his nature. And, and because God, it says God wanted to come down so that they would see him and fear him, not be afraid of him, but reverence him and obey him. God was preparing this people so that they could walk with him in righteousness. In order to do that, they had to see who God is. Not just be casual about, hey, God's the one that brought us out of Egypt. God's the one that feds us. God's the one that does this. To know who this God is by seeing him, in that case, with their physical eyes. So that they would reverence who he is and not sin. They would live righteously. They would see who their creator was. They would see who their deliverer was. And he comes down on the mountain. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to go over and just look. Let's take a look at um, verse 18. Exodus 20, verse 18. Then all the people witnessed the thundering and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, you go, you speak with us and you will, we will hear, but do not let God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, prove you, that, that his fear or reverence may be upon you, before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood far off, but Moses drew near 
to the thick cloud. God wants to deliver them. God wants them to be like Adam was in the beginning, to obey him, to trust him, to walk with him. And God knows how. He's our creator. He knows how to get us where he needs to get us if we'll just do what he says. So God knew. He says, if you get to come out and you just see me in this form, that will develop a reverence in you so that when I tell you something, you'll obey me and you'll not sin and I can bless you. If you went on and read in other places how God wanted to bless them. Psalm 81 cries out, oh, that Israel would have listened to me. I would have fed them with the finest of honey and the finest of wheat. They complained about the manna that they had. God says, I wanted to feed them with the finest of honey. I wanted to bless them and satisfy the need, the desires of their appetites. And then he goes on and says, open your mouth wide and I would have filled it. That's what God wanted to do. But Psalm 107 said they limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited what God could do for them. Why? Because they constantly would disobey him. They would constantly take their lives, their matters into their own hands. They would constantly exercise for themselves their own judgment of what was good and evil, what was right and wrong, of what was good for them to eat. Even in this case, they decide for themselves what they need in order to obey God. Because they say to Moses, oh, we can't handle this. We're going back to our tents. You go up and hear what he has to say. You come down and tell us and we'll obey him. They thought they understood themselves well enough to know what they could handle and what, they, what would it take for them to be obedient so they could be blessed. And they were absolutely wrong because as much as they may have been sincerely believed that's what they do, they, all, they disobeyed him over and over again. But here's a great example. They thought they understood what they needed in order to be right. Just like we do. And all they needed to do was listen to God and do what he said and he would have gotten them there and they would have, he would have been able to bless them beyond anything they could have imagined. So they say Moses, now interesting, they were afraid of God and ran from him. Moses reverenced God and ran to him. Same God. They saw the same sights. They heard the same sounds. They felt the same trembling on the ground. But they reacted in two opposite ways. So it's not just, oh, this is too much to handle. Moses was drawn to the power of God. Moses was drawn to the holiness of God, to the righteousness of God. Why? Because the Bible says he was a very humble man. He wasn't trying to hide things. Remember in Romans, we looked at Romans 1.17, it says, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They didn't want, the world does not want to know about God. That's why they're trying to write God out of the law books. That's why we don't want to talk about God. Don't mention God in public. They don't want us to mention God in public because somehow if there's no God, I don't have to feel guilty about what I'm doing when somehow inside I know there's something wrong. Where do you think that came from? Where does any sense of right and wrong come from? It has to come from a higher authority. Who understands right and wrong and put that conscience in us? But instead of being willing to face the truth and let God minister to that, the world wants to hide from him. And that's what the rest of Israel wanted to do. But Moses was drawn to the presence of God. Moses was drawn to the presence of God. 
Even though sometimes it may reveal things about him, he wanted God to reveal those things about him. So Moses goes back up on the mountain. Now let's go back to the beginning of chapter 20. Because we're going to begin to look at the most dangerous words in the world. I loved it earlier this year when Mario Babarsi was here. And the Bible cover on his, the cover on his Bible says, most dangerous book. <laughs> Banned in 42 countries. What we're about to read, I'm warning you, must be the most dangerous possible words because it's illegal to put them up in public places. They're that dangerous. We have laws now that say you cannot read these in school. You cannot publish these in public places. They must be very dangerous words. Well, they are because they reveal the righteousness of God. Remember we just saw in Romans 5, Paul says, in order to understand the gospel, realize this, from Adam until Moses, sin was in the world, and people died because of sin, but they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't know what the sin was, because they didn't sin the way Adam sinned. Adam sinned and broke a known command. So what God's going to do here is he's going to give to his people just what he gave to Adam, a known, com known commands. Now you're going to know what I require. Now you're going to know what I require in order for you to be righteous in my sight. Now what we're going to learn down the road is God knew that we couldn't do it. But we have to know what it is we're breaking. We have to know what God requires in order to realize that we're rebelling against something, that we're breaking it. We're breaking it. So that we know that we need a Savior. So you can understand why we need the second side of righteousness. You've got to understand the first side. And the purpose of God in giving this law was to understand what his righteousness is, what he requires. And all we're going to really begin to look at is the first one. And God spoke these words saying, verse 1, and here's the most dangerous words in the Bible, the most dangerous words in the world. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Wow. The problem is we read that over quickly and say, yep, yep, that's true. And we've not allowed the full impact of that first commandment to hit us. Go back to verse 2. I, he's telling them who he is. I am the Lord, your God. I am. God's not debating it. God's not saying, you know, let's talk about this. He's come down on the mountain to tell them who he is, to reveal to them who he is. And when God reveals who he is, it forces us, it forces us to respond to who he is. And if we read that, which is what most of us have done most of our lives as Christians, including me, if we just read that and say, yep, that's who he is, then we've not allowed that to really impact us yet. It's the most important commandment because it establishes the relationship between God and man. And God starts out by declaring, I am. 
Not I became one day. Not I was voted in 12 years ago or 20 years ago. Not they took a popular poll and decided this is who I ought to be. God is. When Moses, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and told him that he has come down to appoint Moses to deliver the children of Israel in response to their cry, Moses says, now Moses had seen the burning bush, so he was impacted by this. Moses says, but when I go back, I can't carry this burning bush with me and show them the burning bush. How are they going to believe me? Who will I say I've been talking? They just understand his position. The last time Moses was in Egypt, it wasn't too popular. He had to flee for his life, not just from Pharaoh, from his own people. And now he's going to go back 40 years later, older, more of a beard, white hair, whatever he went back with. And he's going to say, guess what? I was out in the desert and God spoke to me. Oh, really? <laughs> what did he say, Moses? He says, he's come down to deliver you and I'm going to lead you out. Well, you tried that once before and it didn't work too well. Why should we trust you? So it's a legitimate question. And God gave him an answer. Who shall I say sent me? Here's what you shall say. I am. Yeah. I am what? No, I am. Uh, I am. No, I am. I just am. Always have been. Always will be. And anything you put after I am limits who he is. I am. In the Hebrew, that means self-existent one. Everything else was created. He wasn't. He just always has am. I am. I am the Lord. I am the most high authority. I am the creator of all things. You came from me. What you're writing this on came from me. What you're breathing came from me. What, everything that exists came from me. I am the Lord. Not a Lord. Not one of several. I am the only one that ever was, ever will be, and I am that one. I am the Lord. I love it. Your God. I'm not just a God in heaven like the deists believed. I'm not just a God that's off somewhere in the distance and has no relationship. I created you to be mine. I created you in the beginning to be mine. And there are several places it was, and I've come to draw you to myself. I am the Lord, your God, which means I'm the God that belongs to you. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Well, we weren't in Egypt, so it doesn't matter to us. Out of the house of bondage. I'm the one that delivered you from the bondage that you were in. I'm the one that set you free. All those idols that they had in Egypt, they couldn't do anything for you. You couldn't set yourself free. This is a good one to see. I'm the Lord, your God, and I'm the one that delivered you. So God was reminding them that the freedom that they were now enjoying was because he delivered them. They owed their freedom to him as well as everything else. Next verse. Therefore, because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. 
because of who I am. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, because that's who I am, you shall have no other gods before you. And the root of all sin is a violation of that commandment. That's what we've been looking at. What happened in the garden is they established another God themselves. Why they sinned from the madam until the law was they had another God themselves. And then they began to worship other things. Now don't go on, but he's going to go on and talk about not making graven images and not building examples of animals and things that fly and things that creep on the ground to worship. But, I, but idolatry, which is what this is, is far more than that. There can be gods in your life without having something, a statue in your front yard or on your, on your uh, dashboard. There can be idols and they can be people. Anything in your life, and I'm talking to me too, anything in my life, anything in your life that I rely upon and trust in before God is a God in my life. God wants to be, insists, he's not pleading, he insists on being the source of my protection, my provision, my direction. He will use people and other resources, but God insists on being the one that's the source of all of that. Over in James chapter 4, we're not going to go there, he talks about this issue and he talks about uh, he talks about uh, uh, you have not because you ask not, and when you ask, you don't get an answer because you ask to consume it upon your lust. And then he calls, calls them, yeah, the audacity to call them adulterers and adulteresses. And he wasn't referring to what they were physically doing. He was referring to their spiritual life. And what he's wondering, what is he talking about there? Well, let's think about what natural adultery is. It's when a man or a woman who's in a covenant of marriage chooses to satisfy their physical needs by going to somebody that they're not in covenant with, breaking the covenant. I'm not going to look to my wife to satisfy my needs, or I'm not going to look to my husband to satisfy my physical needs. They can't meet my needs, so I'm going to go find somebody else that can't. I'm going to find somebody else that can that's what adultery is. Spiritual adultery is when we do that with God. Instead of drawing my, my sense of well-being, instead of dwelling, dwelling my, my spiritual needs from Him first, I go get them from other people. You know, one way to find out is when something suddenly goes wrong, what's your first reaction? Because your first reaction is going to be where your trust is. Is it to get on the phone and call five people? Is that your first reaction? Or is it to get on your knees and pray? And cry out to your God who's always watching over you and protecting you. God's, this Bible's full of promises of what God wants to do for you. My wife and I have been just kind of meditating together on, on Hebrews 13, where God says, I will never leave you. And actually in the Greek it says, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. Utterly cast down, or, or abandon you. Therefore, I will say, 
The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Are the first words out of your mouth what God says about the situation? Or what other people you've been listening to says? I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you. I brought you. I saved you. I brought you out of the bondage of sin. I brought you out of the condemnation. I brought you out of the guilt and the shame. I saved you. I found you. You didn't find me. I redeemed you. You didn't redeem yourself and just included me. I'm the one that found you. I'm the one that saved you. I'm the one that loves you so much I sent my son to die in your place. You shall have no other gods before me. God demands this. He has a right to demand this because of who he is. And we have no right to assert anything else because of who we are. And every effort to do that is rebellion. It's establishing our own kingdom. Now remember why the law is here. We'll have to end with this. The law is here. We're going to learn to show us what we can do on our own. Because I'm going to tell you ahead of time, nobody can keep that commandment all the time. Nobody can keep that commandment all the time. But if we don't know what God's righteousness requires, we will not fully appreciate the grace that's been lavished upon us. Amen? Well, we're going to have to end here because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we delve into your word and now we delve into your commandments. Father, we're asking you to open the eyes of our understanding to see what it is you've done for us, to see you as you are, to know you as you truly are, and not to be afraid of you and run away from you, but to reverence you and respect you and run to you who's loved us so much that you gave your own son's life to pay for our rebellion, to pay for our sin, to pay for our idolatry. Open our eyes to see what you have done for us. For today, Lord, we're going to celebrate together the Lord's table that remembers, that remembers the sacrifice that he made for us, that we may have forgiveness of these sins. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we...